today I'm going to continue, obviously, in Galatians. And I'm going to turn to start in Galatians 4 once again. There's a couple ways to preach through a book. I kind of do a little of both. One way to preach through a book is just to go verse by verse and just explain meanings. Nothing wrong with that. I do a little of that. Another way to do it is to preach through a book and as you encounter a subject, you address it and talk about it because it brings understanding to that book since there's a story behind what Paul's talking about and it's good to understand the larger picture. And today we're going to do a little more of the latter. Not so much all out of Galatians, but it is something that is all through Galatians as a general tone and thrust. Galatians 4.16. Now Paul, up to this point, is taking great pains to explain to the Galatians that they have come under what he calls another gospel. This isn't just a little mistake that the Galatians have made. They are deceived. They have come under an entirely different gospel than the one that speaks the truth of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going back and forth, back and forth with all these arguments from Scripture, appealing to the fact that the Galatians did start out right. He says to them, for instance, in Galatians 3, you began in the Spirit. Now why are you getting off into this other stuff? So he's trying to bring them back on course. But of course, as usually is the case, when people get off onto these things, there are reasons why they get off onto things. You know, we don't just sit and the devil doesn't just pounce on us and deceive us and we're a big victim. In the end, there's a reason why people buy into error. There's something about it that appeals to them. In this case, it may have very well been because the Galatians were getting some pride out of trying to establish their own righteousness through law-keeping. Certainly, it all goes back to unbelief. If you don't believe the truth, you're obviously, by default, going to fall into error. And so all of that's in the mix, but Paul has been arguing to try to bring them back. And in Galatians 4.16, after all these arguments, he comes up with this. He says to them, Am I therefore... Become your enemy because I tell you the truth. I think it's a principle all through the Word of God. certainly applies to when Jesus was here preaching the truth. That the answer to that question, am I your enemy if I tell you the truth, is always going to be yes from anybody that doesn't love the truth, isn't it? If you're speaking to somebody that doesn't love the truth, doesn't want the truth has already dug trenches around error, you are going to become their enemy by telling them the truth. You're certainly not going to become their friend unless, of course, they're open to God. And then they will be responding to the truth. But Paul asks this question to the Galatians. He says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And then as we read earlier in this series, my little children, in verse 19, I am travailing in birth until Jesus Christ be formed in you. This, in other words, is the truth that I want to tell you, that Christ needs to be formed in you. You need to be created in Christ Jesus. 
am I your enemy because I have woken you up to that fact, Paul is saying to the Galatians. So in the mind of the Apostle Paul, it was very important to tell people the truth, even if it made him their enemy. And Paul certainly made a lot of enemies, didn't he, by telling the truth. Enemies in the churches. So did Jesus make a lot of enemies by telling the truth. Certainly in the religious authorities of the day, they handed him over to be crucified. Something about truth that just absolutely cuts through things, draws a big red line, and makes people accountable for stepping either on the one side of that line or the other. The minute light comes and the minute truth comes, does it not make us accountable? Because there's no way to be ignorant anymore, is there? And so when people begin to tell the truth about God and the gospel, it is probably the most polarizing thing imaginable. And so the truth makes a lot of enemies, and of course it can save many. In today's message, I want to talk about the absolute essential of telling the truth. And I'm not speaking about lying versus telling the truth in our everyday life as much as I'm talking about the essential of telling people the truth about God. The absolute essential of that. Now, we can read in Galatians, I want to read a few scriptures in Galatians just to show how this essential of telling the truth is on the mind of Paul and how he's trying to push home to the Galatians that what you're dealing with here, Galatians, is spiritual life and death. This isn't about getting together and discussing clever theological insights and then going home and forgetting about it. This is about your spiritual walk. This is about God. This is about what you are becoming in Jesus Christ. Our physical life or death is important to us, and it ought to be. But my goodness, it seems to me if you read the New Testament especially, spiritual life and death is all the more important because that's eternal. And it affects so much down here as well. So Paul was very concerned about truth, telling the truth. Galatians 1, verse 6, some of these we have covered before, but this is as a way of reminder in showing the emphasis and the need of preaching the truth. Remember how Paul said to them, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. I marvel that you're so soon removed to another gospel. And then Paul says, but if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, then that which we have preached unto you, let him, in other words, that one preaching this false gospel, be accursed. And then in verse 10, similar to his question that we just read, am I making an enemy out of you by telling you the truth, he says, having said this, do I now try to persuade men or please men, in other words, or am I trying to please God? For if I am trying to please men, Paul says, I'm not a servant of Christ. So in other words, a servant of Christ 
isn't going to be nasty to people. He isn't going to go out of his way to, to displease men. That's not the point. But the servant of Christ is going to preach the truth. He is going to please God. And he will be guaranteed along the way to make some enemies in doing so, but also to see many saved. Galatians 2.5, he's talking about people who were responsible for the heresy being brought into the Galatian church. He says those people have tried to bring us into bondage. And he says in verse 5 in chapter 2, To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Does it sound like Paul had the attitude in his churches that anything goes? In other words, here comes a person in preaching this, here comes a person in preaching that. Uh, Let's just all love one another and not even care what the truth is. No, Paul says, I didn't tolerate it for a moment because this heresy will destroy spiritual lives and it will set people adrift. Now that's God's interest. That's not a personal peeve that Paul had against somebody. It's Paul saying, listen, I have been made responsible for the truth and error isn't getting in my church. That's Galatians 2.5. Galatians 2.14. He was rehearsing this time that Peter hypocritically misrepresented the gospel. Don't want to cover that ground again. But in verse 14 he says, But when I saw that they, Peter and his party, did not walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I rebuked Peter. And you can read that rebuke later. So in other words... Here we step it up a notch. It's not simply a matter of saying right words. It's also a matter of the gospel you live. Not that we're going to live perfectly, but this is a representation that Paul's talking about of the gospel. And Peter misrepresented it, and Paul had to rebuke him. Galatians 3.1 O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you or cast a spell over you that you should not obey the truth? In other words, got to believe the truth, got to preach the truth, but got to obey it. Paul says if you're not and you're saved, you've been bewitched somehow. Not demon-possessed or something spooky, but you've come under the spell of some deception or heresy, in other words, in the sense that it's gotten to you. And you've bought into it. Something similar in Galatians 5, 7. He says to them, you were running well. In other words, you were obeying and walking in the truth. Who did hinder you that you should now not obey the truth? This persuasion does not come from him that calls you. And in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, if you know anything about baking and what leaven does, he is saying here, you let in error. You let in a root of bitterness. You let in heresy. And before you know it, it's going to start spreading everywhere, and it'll start with the weak ones that don't know any better. And it isn't that you're a Gestapo and you go around slamming and putting fires out. It's number one, you create an atmosphere where you preach the truth and nothing else. And it's going to be allowed and everybody's going to know about it. And I'll tell you something, if you do that, if you preach the truth like Paul did, you're going to make enemies and you're going to make friends. But I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to have a strong church. 
Because the people that will be there are going to be the ones that want the truth as much as you do. And if you preach the truth, they'll respond to that. It's funny, Jesus said to the Pharisees, and this is in the Bible a bunch of times, He said, He that is of God hears the words of God. John 8, 47. There's a lot in that. In other words, I may not be able to explain the truth theologically. I may not, that may not be my thing. I may be new in the faith. I may not know all the little theological things and all the little corners and eddies and so forth of the ways of God. But Jesus said that if you have the Holy Spirit in you and you really are seeking God and want the truth, he is saying you're going to hear the words of God in the sense that you're at least going to respond in a positive way, at least inquire to hear more. You're not going to say, nope. I don't accept that. I had people in Massachusetts do that. I had a lady one time at a Bible study. We started a Bible study in Romans. And of course, the first chapter of Romans condemns homosexuality, if you know that book. And we started down there. There wasn't anything too um, emotional going on. I just says, here it is. She was sitting there at the Bible, with Bible at the table. And I kid you not, she went slam. I don't believe that. I don't accept it. And she never came back. Now, that's not being open to the truth. That's deciding ahead of time what your truth will be. And then just filtering the truth of God through that and then accepting whatever agrees with what you say the truth will be. And really, if you add all that up, that is the description, in a nutshell, of deception. Deception is when I determine the truth. People don't usually think about it that way, but it is. But this is what Paul has to say about truth all through this epistle of the Galatians. Now, I want to talk, as I mentioned today, the way Paul does about the absolute essential of telling the truth about God. Now, maybe point one in this message ought to be something so simple, I think often we just skip right by it. Point one is the fact that we need to get it settled that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Now, that's important because many people today don't believe there is. And unfortunately, that is something that is getting into the church more and more and more. Less and less you will hear preached in churches the truth of God. More and more it's entertainment. Or it's some kind of a wishy-washy, sit-on-the-fence thing that never makes anybody accountable for anything and never pushes us to know Jesus. But there is such a thing as absolute truth. And do you know how I know that if I know it for no other reason? I know that there's absolute truth because there is God. Once we admit there is a God, we are saying there is an absolute being. And if there's an absolute being, there is absolute truth. And that truth is found in Him. Now the Bible says this. 1 John 1.5 is probably the best place that 
states this openly. All the writings of John, incidentally, were done toward the end of the first century, where Gnosticism began to invade the church, and people began to believe that there was no such thing as absolute truth. That's why when you read the three epistles of John, when you read the Gospel of John, especially, what does he talk about? He talks about continually truth, doesn't he? And he talks about Jesus as God incarnate. Because this is the core of it all, isn't it? Once that's established, then you can go from there. John 1, verse 5. John writes, now notice, this is the message which we have heard of him. So whatever John's going to talk about here, this certainly is right in the middle of the message that he received as an apostle for the church. He says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him... There is no darkness at all. How many see there a statement to the effect that God is absolute truth? Not only is God absolute truth, but just to make sure we don't understand, we don't misunderstand, Paul says not only is God light, truth, same, same thought, but in God there is no darkness. So in other words, if I don't understand and I'm confused... And I don't have all the information. It's not because God has darkness in him. It's not because God is gray or God lives in a gray area. It's because I do. And fortunately, God wants to bring us into the light. Now, this really is an encouraging scripture, I know, for me. Because it tells me that God is a purposeful God that God knows exactly what he's doing, he intends to do it, he wants to do it, he's not making it up as he goes along, he's not wishy-washy, he's not undecided, confused, or dependent on anybody for his own honesty. The Bible says all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. In other words, if we're all liars, God is true. If we're all faithless, God is faithful. If we're all in the dark and wishy-washy people, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And that's a great comfort because it tells me that no matter what I'm involved in and no matter how difficult it might seem, at some point I'm going to see the God that's light and I'm going to know him regardless. Now, James 1.17 says something very similar to what we read here in uh, 1 John 1. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In other words, God doesn't change depending on what mood he's in. You know, if you look at God one way, you don't see dark spots. And then another way, and you see light. God's the same always. He is light. And in him there is no darkness. Now, could read, 
a hundred more scriptures, but we don't have time along this line. What all of this tells us is that there is such a thing as absolute truth because there is such a thing as God, who is the embodiment of all light and truth. So to deny that there is such a thing as truth, can we now see that what we're really doing is denying God? We're denying, number one, the nature and character of God. We're denying that he cares enough to reveal himself to us. Because God himself is the truth. Now, in the Bible, there are many statements about God. The Bible is the written truth about God. It's the inspired word of God, inerrant, the written truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And he was referring to the scriptures. Why is the Bible the truth? It isn't just because God wrote it. That's included. The Bible is the truth because it tells the truth about God. Who is the truth? See what I'm saying? In other words, God is a person, and the Bible tells the truth about him. It rightly represents him. It ought to. God inspired it. It's an autobiography in a sense. But since that is so, that makes the Bible the written truth. Consequently, when we turn to the Bible and we dig out of it, for instance, doctrines and theology, what makes our doctrine and theology true? Well, it's because it's in the Bible. But what makes our doctrine and theology true is because it tells the truth about God. It's one thing to say, I'm teaching true doctrine because it's in the Bible. That's fine. But I'm teaching true doctrine because it tells the truth about God. And since the Bible does also tell the truth about God, it's obviously going to agree. And so what we see here is that what defines truth is anything written, spoken, lived, whatever, that rightly represents God. Now, I often put it this way, and it sounds funny, but we're talking about God, so it's kind of hard to wrap an infinite God up into a sentence. But how do you know something's the truth? Well, the truth tells the truth about the truth. That's how you know. I mean, that's it. The truth tells the truth about the truth. If my doctrine is true doctrine, the reason it's true is that you take it back to God and you see whether it's rightly representing Him. Now, once we realize that, we see that theological arguments, while they have their place, if the goal there is to find the truth of the Bible, it's kind of coming short of what this is really all about. People, for instance, I've sat down across the table with a Calvinist person. I've had occasion to do that in my life. And they get going on all of this theological argument of what the Bible says, and I believe, biblically speaking, they are in total error. However, the bottom line is, and this is what I always ask myself, what kind of a God are we talking about when you teach your doctrine? If you believe that God has preordained millions to hell as opposed to preordaining some to salvation, and that that is set and nothing is going to change it. 
you're describing the kind of God you believe in and follow. In the end, when all the Bible verses are exhausted, that's what it comes down to. What kind of a God does Calvinism preach? What kind of a God, I've ta- I was taught this growing up, would send you to hell for eating meat on Friday once? That's taught. What kind of a God would curse you because you stepped out of line slightly, even if you repented later? That's taught a lot too. I know people, for instance, that submit to various authorities in their church. And they're taught if they don't do that, God will curse them. Because God always works through that authority. That is an abominable lie. And it ruins people's lives. What kind of a God are we talking about there? Now again, if I look all that stuff up in the Bible, I'm going to see very clearly that it violates Scripture. But it only violates Scripture because it violates God. So when we talk about the truth and preaching the truth, and this is why Paul is so adamant about this all through the New Testament, and as is the Apostle John, we're not talking about a little theological angle that I want you to see so that we can all think we're smarter. We're talking, when everything is said and done, about God Himself and His revelation to us, and we're talking about a life that's going to be lived by somebody who embraces that. I tell the story, I could tell you horror stories that would make your hair stand on end about people that have gotten under error. I've heard of people that have let children die of treatable ailments because they believe it's a sin to take medicine. I know people that have married people that they weren't in love with because some pastor told them to and they thought they should submit. I knew of a couple people that were married for 20 years and they were told to break up because one of them was divorced when they were 18. And the doctrine there was once you're divorced, you're never forgiven for that and you can never marry again, so that second marriage is invalid. And they were commanded by their church to break up that marriage. And they did it with kids in the family. I know people personally, I have friends right now, that came under error 20 and 30 years ago, and their entire Christian walk has been defined by it. By that error, they are under that error, they live in that error, and they do not know Jesus. I'm not letting them off the hook. They're responsible for what they believe in the end. But, the point is, truth matters. In fact, I'll tell you how much it matters. Remember what Jesus said about the truth? He said, I am the truth. You think truth doesn't matter? You don't think Jesus matters. In fact, I'll tell you, Once we're saved, what is God's primary purpose? To reveal to us Jesus. To reveal to us truth so that we can be set free and walk with God. So what does that say about people that will get up and say truth doesn't matter? What does that say about this watering down of the truth in the church today, if it's even preached at all? 
It says that Satan has gotten a foothold, doesn't it? Christianity is about truth. In fact, Christianity is truth. Because Jesus is the truth and Christianity is about him. So once we say that truth does not matter, once we neglect it, once we deny it, once we say there is no such thing as truth, or if we say that there's more than one truth, we're denying Jesus. We may not know we're doing that. It may not be what's in our thinking, but in the end, that's what it comes down to. Because Jesus said, I am the truth. I always like that when people say there's more than one truth. I don't know if you could find a more self-contradictory statement. By definition, if you have a truth, that truth is, well, it's truth. It's right. How can you have another one that doesn't agree with that and it also be the truth? No. If there's one God, there's one truth. And it's absolute in every way. So truth matters if Christianity matters. In fact, we just read there in 1 John, I'll finish that up, that thought up in that passage, 1 John 5, this is the message that we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Notice verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. In other words, in order to have fellowship with God, we have to be in the truth about God. Not perfectly, not know all truth, we're all in a process. But we have to be headed in the right direction. We have to at least be open to the truth. You see, to be open to the truth and open to God really is what this is all about before we even start talking about what truth is or what is the truth. If you're not open to the truth, you're not going to know truth. But if you are, God will show you, which is my second point. Once we decide that there is such a thing as absolute truth and all of that truth is of God, then we discover in Scripture that God wants us to know Him and to know the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires for all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. A lot of other passages, I think John 16.13 probably is one of the better ones. Jesus says there, in fact I want to turn to it so I can read the uh, more extended passage because there's a lot in it. He says in John 16, 12, I have many things to say to you, but right now you can't hear them. So he's looking forward to a time when they can hear what he has to say. And he says how. That will be undertaken later. He says, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, he shall speak. And he will show you eternal things. He will glorify me. For he will receive of mine and shall show them unto you. All things that the Father has are mine. 
Therefore said I that the Comforter shall take of mine and shall show them unto you. Now, easy to skip right by this because there's such a a wonderful thing being said here. But notice the terminology. Notice in John 16, 13, the name that Jesus, in this case, gives to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth. In fact, there's another place in the Bible, and I don't think I wrote down the reference, but it says the Spirit is Truth. Now, my point is this. If the Holy Spirit, which is God's agency for revealing to us Jesus, if the Holy Spirit, who is the means by which Christ dwells in us, the Holy Spirit's the one that's doing all the work now in the church age. If the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth, does it sound like it's possible to walk in the Spirit unless you're walking in truth? Or at least unless you're in the process of being open to God for truth and having the Spirit in a progressive fashion unfold the truth to you? Not at all. When I was much younger, a lot of people had all these definitions, most of them were wrong, as I've found, of what it really means to walk in the Spirit. And a lot of people used to say, well, that's having visions. That's having God speak to you. That's having God lead you, leadings. And I wouldn't discount any of those things, those possibilities. In the Christian life, God leads people. But to walk in the Spirit is not fundamentally any of those things. To walk in the Spirit means to be in fellowship with God governed by a knowledge of Jesus. Which means, in other words... To walk in the Spirit means to walk in truth, as far as you know. You can't walk in the Spirit of truth unless you're at least beginning to learn the truth. Now, if you think this is true, it only makes sense. Think about this for a second. Just read it in 1 John 5. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. Why? Because God is light. In other words, if I'm in darkness and God is light, how can there be fellowship? But the point is this, that if God, if Jesus is the truth, is it possible to walk in true fellowship with Jesus if I am walking in error? How can you? Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus rejects a person, sends them to hell, will never have anything to do with them again because they were deceived or in error. That's not what this is about. This isn't about God saying, you walk in truth or else. No, this is about God's desire to reveal the truth to us so we can be free. And it's about the fact that unless we do see the truth, we can't walk with Jesus. It's not a matter of punishments. It's a matter of fact. If I am living in absolute error as to the kind of God that God really is, if I believe lies about Jesus Christ, how can I possibly 
walk with him toward the same purposes and the same ends. How can I possibly know him? Have you ever been in a relationship with another human being where they believed lies about you? Whether it's their fault or they simply believed gossip. Or have you ever believed lies about somebody later to find out you were wrong? Well, until those lies were brought into the light and exposed. There's not much of a relationship there, is there? You can fake one. You can say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, have a nice day, that's fine. But the fact of the matter is, you're going to be carrying on a relationship with a person that really isn't there. Because the person you believe is there is a lie. So consequently, without the truth of God, we're carrying on a relationship with a figment figment of our imagination. Lots of people have a relationship with a God that's not there. They talk with Him, they try to walk with Him, and I imagine God is sitting in heaven quite grieved because He's saying, I can't go with you in this. It's not the truth. See, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness, and that's never going to change. And what I'm getting at is this. If I am in error, and God is the truth, the way to fix that isn't that God's going to accommodate Himself to me. God is not going to become a dimmer light to accommodate my darkness. God is not going to step over into the darkness to fellowship with me. He wants to bring me over into the light. Now, that's not bad news. That's great news. Unless there is somebody that wants to spend life in darkness. No. God wants us to know the truth. In fact, He's doing everything He can to show us the truth. Now, how does He show us the truth? Somebody... Somebody is liable to say, well, you know, you're talking about knowing the truth. What's the big deal? All I have to do is open up this book and read it. And I'll be reading truth. Well, that's, that's fact. But obviously there has to be more to truth than just reading Bible verses. For instance, Paul was teaching the Galatians all kinds of truth in this epistle that we're going through. And yet he says, I travail until Christ is formed in you. In other words, I can give you Bible facts. I can give you information. I can tell you what you need to do to find God. But Christ needs to be actually formed in you. You have to come to inner, to an inner consciousness of Christ. Paul writes tremendous doctrine to the Ephesians. And teaches them truth. And it is the truth. And yet he says in chapter 1, verse 16, in the midst of all this theological truth, he says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now why didn't Paul say, I do not cease to make mention of you in my prayers that you would read your Bible more and understand the truth that way. Can't do that. Now, if you're getting what I'm saying, now we find out why it's possible for one person to read the Bible and come to conclusion A and 
for another person to read the Bible and come to conclusion B. Now we know it's why, why it's possible for somebody, and you hear them on TV all the time, to hold this book up and read right out of it and teach right out of it, and there isn't a word they're saying that's the truth, and they're using the Bible. It's because... They can read the Bible just like you and I can. Anybody can read the Bible and see what it says. But only the Holy Spirit can show us what it means. Because we need to see Jesus. And once we see Jesus and begin to know Him, then we begin to understand what the Bible is saying about Him. And so the written word and the revealed uh uh, process of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand, and of course he often uses the Bible to do that. Now, I asked the question a couple minutes earlier, how does God get us to the place where he can reveal truth to us? I think often he puts us in a situation where the only thing that's going to get us through is to see more of Jesus. And I'm not talking about God, quote, giving us the answer to our problem or an explanation to our problem, or getting us out of our problem, all that's fine. I'm saying that God's going to put us in situations that seem to contradict His character and His promises. And if we hang in and seek God with all of our hearts, we will see God. And He will be our answer. And we'll see that He was right. And we'll see that it was good. And so God often does that, certainly in order to reveal the truth to us of Jesus. God often has to show us where our errors have been. I often say that it's much harder to unlearn error than it is to learn truth. I think that's true because we start in error. A lot of the error is just intertwined in all of our temperament and personality. Much error has to do with things we don't even think consciously about. It's just our perception. And God has to expose that. He has to bring out into the open. If we want to be in the light, usually the first thing God has to do is expose error. I mean, what is light? Light comes in and makes the darkness all go away, doesn't it? It isn't just that they can exist side by side. Like I said before, it's all or nothing, one or the other. If God brings light, everything is exposed. And so immediately we become accountable to God. We have to confess to God where we've been wrong about Him. And again, it's easy to say, well, gee, God, I was wrong theologically. Because now I understand a Bible verse better. But I have found that where the rubber meets the road is when I finally say, gee, God, I have been wrong about you. And that wrong about you finds its root in unbelief somewhere. Not purposeful, devious plotting to unbelieve God, but just the built-in unbelief that all of us have. If anybody in here, when they get up in the morning, sits down and tries to plot how to rebel against God every day, we've got a problem. But a lot of it is just plain blindness, isn't it? It's a blindness and it's a built-in hardness. And God has to put us in situations where He deals with that. But it's all positive. It's all about Him saying to us, 
I want to reveal myself to you. Now, if Jesus is the truth, and if you're saved, you have Jesus in you, then you've got truth in you. But, a process must be undertaken by the Holy Spirit whereby Jesus, who is already in you, is unfolded to you. And you begin to know him. That's why Paul, on the one hand, can say, you are complete in Christ. There's anything to add once you have Christ. He has it all. He's all truth. He's all light. He's all life. But the process must be undertaken, and this is where some of these difficult things are necessary, whereby all of Jesus begins slowly and surely to be revealed to us. So when we talk about knowing the truth, don't think of truth as a thing we know. Or of a list of stuff we know. We can explain it that way. Doctrines explain truth. Theology explains truth. We have to verbalize and communicate truth like I'm doing right now. But in the end, it's all about knowing Christ. And then your truth becomes more than just a written or verbal, hard letter of the law kind of a thing. It becomes a living thing. In fact, it becomes a relationship. So God wants to reveal the truth to us. God wants us to know him, and often what this requires are some pretty drastic upheavals. And really to prove that, all you have to do is look at the history of the apostles themselves. Look what they went through. Just to get free of that old Jewish religion, which started out at least to be of God, they had to go through that tremendous experience of seeing Jesus crucified, And then the day of Pentecost, which finally brought the Holy Spirit to them, but they weren't done then. They spent their lives knowing and and growing to know Jesus. Look at Apostle Paul. Truth is eternal because Jesus is eternal, so no one has a corner on it. And no one ever knows it all in this life. But we should at least be in it and learning it and open to it. So there is absolute truth. God wants us to know the truth. There are ways that God has to reveal truth or reveal Jesus to us. My last point, what does truth do for us? Well, everybody probably is thinking of the same verse right now. What did Jesus say? He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that you're a nicer person? Does it mean that you're free to do what you want or whatever? I mean, that's what freedom today is defined as. Today, freedom is defined as being free to do whatever you please without any guilt. Freedom today is defined as eliminating the definitions of right and wrong. Of course, that's the devil's definition of freedom. Well, first of all, the kind of freedom that Jesus was talking about cannot be divorced from God. In other words, when Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free, he was saying the truth shall set you free into a relationship of God with God. 
which is the only kind of freedom there is. Now, if we go back to the initial statements that I was making about the fact that Jesus is the truth, that God is absolute truth, that all truth is found in God. If we go back to what I was saying about the kind of God that I believe in determining so much about my Christian life, can we see, therefore, what Jesus was getting at? In other words, if you and I really and and honestly see the truth about God Almighty... The result is never going to be that we're going to go run and hide from him. The result is never going to be that we're going to want to rebel against him. If we see the truth about God, if we see what kind of God we're really talking about, it's all good. We're going to run to him. We're going to be absolutely free of anything between us and God that would keep us from entering into full fellowship and relationship with him. All have a ways to go in that, don't we? But nevertheless, it's a fact. If I see the truth about God, I am going to see that He is 100% honest, 100% truthful, and 100% faithful to me. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. There is no variableness with God, no shadow of turning. I'm going to see, if I really see God, that every one of these promises in the Bible is the truth. I'm going to see they're the truth regardless of what circumstances may be saying otherwise. I'm going to see they're the truth regardless of the fact that we're all in a process. So the truth will set us free unto a relationship with God. Because the truth is going to tell the truth about God. And the truth is all good, and I'm going to seize everything I could have ever wanted or hoped for or believed. It's going to be a thousand million times better than my highest thought about Him. Regardless of what might seem to cast a shadow over that. In 2 Corinthians 10, there's a verse that says a lot about God says a lot about the battle we're in along this line of the truth about God and the kind of God we serve. Paul's talking about really spiritual warfare here. He says in 2 Corinthians 10.3, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now we so often forget this, don't we? And, And certainly Paul would say that that doesn't mean that we don't address practical issues. If somebody's sinning, they need to stop sinning in the flesh. You don't just say, well, this is spiritual, I don't need to care about that. No. But he's saying that the root of the matter, the core of so many issues, especially issues that do damage to people's spiritual lives, whether it be individually or in a church, he is saying that so often what you think is a difficult personality, what you think is just a difficult person disrupting your church, He's saying you need to pray about that because there may be more to that than you think. Now, there may not be, too. We don't want to look for a devil under every rock. But the fact is that there are spiritual forces at work that are against what God wants to do. And Paul says, 
don't fight these battles in the flesh. Understand that this is about a spiritual issue. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and to the casting down of imaginations and every high thing that does what? Exalts itself against the true knowledge of God. We read that verse, we can come up with a whole bunch of uh, dogmatic statements. Number one, there is a true knowledge of God. The verse would be nonsense otherwise. Number two, it's possible to have that. Or why bother telling people to cast down anything that comes against it? Number three, the devil will come against it. And there is a point in time where we have to take a stand against it. What Paul is saying here is, you have a revelation of who God is and what he is like. And he is saying the devil is going to come and try to kill, steal, and destroy that. He is going to come, he's going to use circumstances, he's going to use people, he's going to use your own temperament. He's going to use your own imaginations. He's going to call upon, the devil is everything in you that he can find that could possibly try to deny or come against the true knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. He is saying these things will be real, these things will be upsetting, you may have to fight tooth and nail through it, but he's saying God nevertheless is the God he says he is, and if you begin to see that, you're going to start casting down those imaginations and casting down everything that calls God a liar. Now I said at the beginning of the message how important truth was, you read this verse, you get an idea. If I don't cast down imaginations and I don't live in the true knowledge of God, well then what? It's not a matter of God getting mad and punishing me. If I don't cast down imaginations, the imaginations are going to be there. If I don't live in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ and hang in and stand by faith, well then I'll be moved and I'll get into deception. Not a matter of God getting mad. It's a matter of me unbelief, not believing. And you can set your life on a course that God never intended. Now, fortunately, for every wrong fork in the road we take, there's another fork in the road down the line that will get us back to where we were if we'll take it then because God is a jealous God and is always faithful to come and get us when we get off the track because he's a very redemptive God. And so this is how important truth is. This is how we exercise freedom. We're talking about freedom. Now, when we talk about the truth setting us free into a relationship with God, there's another way to say that. The truth sets us free, but really what we're saying is that the truth at the end of the day makes us true. In the end, it will. If what I say is the truth is not making me true to God, it's not truth, or I haven't, I haven't embraced. It's just theology to me, maybe, at that point. And what I'm saying is that if the truth sets us free, if the truth makes us true, the truth, seeing Jesus, ought to change me. 
It ought to change not only my thinking, our minds are to be renewed according to the truth. It ought to not only change my conduct, but the truth will change my relationship with God right at the core to where I'm walking with Him in love. Again, relationship, freedom in a relationship. How many recognize that man born into Adam can be called many things, spiritually dead, sin nature, the whole bit, but at the end of the day, one way to say or describe what man is as he is born in Adam is that he is an untrue creature. He is a false creature. He became that. It isn't what God created. When Adam stepped into darkness, he became a creature that was governed and characterized by lies, falsehood, and darkness. Sounds like an ugly thing, but that it is. That's why Jesus had to die. Man is a false creature. He is an untrue creature to God. The truth is introduced, and notice what happens. The untrue creatures that we are, if we embrace that truth, well, then we become true. We become right with God. We become rightly related to Him. We become honest and open. If I'm an untrue person, and I'm holding the hands of Jesus, who is the truth, how far are we going to be able to walk together? I'm untrue, he's true. How much fellowship is there there? How much do the circles overlap? They don't. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But you see what Jesus will do, he won't say, get away from me, I don't want to have anything to do with you, you're perfect. God doesn't say that, does he? What he does is he grips my hand and as I take each step with him, I'm taking a step out of my untrueness and darkness into the light. Because that's where he's walking. And as I do, progressively I grow to know him and I become, by virtue of seeing Jesus, more and more true to God. So, closing thought. Talked about the fact that God is truth, there is absolute truth. Consequently, God wants us to know him. He's in the process of revealing truth to us and the truth will set us free and make us true. In a nutshell, what all this means is that in the Christian life, the purpose of God really for all mankind is to restore us back into a relationship with Him in Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely impossible without truth. Jesus is the truth. You can't be in a relationship if you want error with Jesus. God wants us to rev- wants to reveal himself to us so that we can now and forever fellowship and walk with him and become those who are able to walk with him. Now, when we see that big picture as to the absolute essential of knowing the truth. Again, not because we're going to get punished if we don't. The absolute essential of knowing the truth because this is about knowing and experiencing God. 
Can we see why Paul was so adamant? Almost pleads with the Galatians, says to them, I want you to be set free. He says to them, you're, you're dying spiritually. I want you to see the truth so that you can come back to God and know Him. And he says to them, Have I made you an enemy by telling you this? He says, I am absolutely travailing in my guts until Christ be formed in you because until He is, you are going to live on a completely wrong basis and there's going to be damage. Not unredeemable damage but as long as it's going on damage and he's able to say to them later you are fallen from grace and Christ is of no effect to you because you're walking in this error every time in the gospels you can look this up later that Jesus addressed people that were off the track. You get a number of responses. Sometimes he gets confrontational with Pharisees. Usually when he addresses people that are religious and think they have arrived, he can get pretty stern. But it is of quite, quite a note to me as to how Jesus responds at the end of the day about all this stuff. And I think that you see this at the end, I think it's of Matthew 23, where he just laid into the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you whitened sepulchers, you serpents, or whatever he called them on that occasion. Pretty tough stuff coming from Jesus to the Pharisees. All of that said and done. He walks outside of the city. He's standing up there on the Mount of Olives. And he turns back to Jerusalem and he begins to weep. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have wanted. That's the heart of God. It isn't about God demanding. It's about God wanting to deliver. That's the essential of truth, that we might know him and be set free.